Welcome to another episode of the Global Surgery Series. I'm Cynthia Choya. And I'm Catherine Yu. And we have our two guests today, Dr. Tollison and Dr. Sykes. We'll be talking about research in global surgery today. We're excited to have them both. Dr. Sykes' research interests include working to develop effective and efficient models for delivering high-quality healthcare services to historically underserved communities internationally and in the United States. His research has led him to work in partnership with communities in Guatemala, India, and the Dominican Republic. Welcome, Dr. Sykes. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. And our other guest is Dr. Tollefson. His current research focuses on clinical outcomes for patients with cleft lip palate, facial trauma education in Africa, patterns of mandible fracture care, and patient-reported outcomes in facial paralysis surgeries. He enjoys teaching in collaboration with other surgeons globally, with current projects in Rwanda, Zimbabwe, Cambodia, China, and Haiti, and heads educational efforts for the cranio-maxillofacial division of the AO Alliance in resource-limited countries. Welcome, Dr. Tollison. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. This is a great opportunity to talk about something that's so important, and it's exciting to sit and be able to tell some stories and describe successes and failures today in, in the field of global surgery. So thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to talk to the both of you. I think a place to start would be talking about why research is important in global surgery and then talking about what is the current state of research in regard to global surgery, what are the focuses and the gaps. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Tollefson? Well, thanks. When I did get interested in the field of global surgery, it really wasn't called global surgery. As we all kind of remember this famous quote from Paul Farmer describing surgery as the neglected stepchild of global health. And in 2003, was really interested in getting involved outside of the U.S. to expand my knowledge of what strategies would be effective and what burdens surgeons had in other countries. So my thoughts at that point were just on studying the surgical burden of disease and reading and trying to understand what people knew uh, with a lot of extrapolation, trying to understand how much surgical disease was going untreated. And so this hottest topic at that point was best understanding incidence, prevalence, and unmet need for surgical procedures. And this was exciting because the head and neck was a site for a lot of the burden. And everything from congenital deformities like cleft lip and palate to trachoma from the eyes to infectious diseases that were treated surgically. And that surgical burden of disease research kind of built, I think, the, the basis, the foundation that then started laying the work into what now I think is the hottest topics. And that's trying to address the differences of available resources, trained individuals, and safe surgical sites, because that's the one difference between global surgery and global medicine. And that's that surgeons require infrastructure, support, and safety for the patients to do what they do with the surgery. So it's exciting to watch because I think the foundation came from understanding what we needed to do and how much of a problem it was. And it's flowed into this really, I think, collaborative effort where now instead of us going in to gain information. Now, the real rule and the real goal has to be relationships with local surgeons that then we can support and learn with. And 
I'd love to hear uh, Kevin's thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I think global surgery certainly in and of itself is growing. I feel like there's an increased interest in this amongst learners and amongst our younger faculty attendings and, and practicing surgeons around the country. And I think there's been a long kind of story about why that's true. I think a lot of it has to do with globalization more broadly and and sort of the introduction to the the challenges in the other parts of the world that that are so front and center when we have media telling us every day what's going on in other parts of the world and we have social media to to kind of give us an unfiltered version of that sometimes too and i think it's been interesting to watch that interest grow and i think research has followed you know it's been probably 15 or so years since i've begun to be involved in this especially in the surgical space and i think it's been interesting to watch that development happen as as time has gone on i don't know really if i would say that i would notice as much a unique hot topic um, but i do think there's an encouraging move toward reporting more outcomes which is an, an important move and back in about 2014 i published a systematic review on medical service trips broadly that was surgical and non-surgical trips and only 6% of the nearly 1,200 publications that I considered in that review included any empirical results. And honestly, most of those were amongst surgical interventions. I've not recalculated that number since then, um, but it certainly feels like I'm seeing more and more publications that include intentional data collection and analysis. And I think I've also been pleased to see a number of publications, including qualitative assessments of patient and community perspectives on these trips, which is a really important component. Um, and as Dr. Tolleson was talking about, these kind of engaged communities and partners in these places, um, we typically have not heard their voices in, in research and certainly not in published research. And I think that's a positive move that we're beginning to see some of that and the, and the reflections of the things that we do well and the things that we're challenged to do better. And I, I really think we should value those voices. I think they're critical um, sometimes, but they're also really supportive of the efforts in general. And I think we have to do more to give them that platform to speak. And, and sometimes that's research. Sometimes it's just listening, frankly. Um, but our local partners can really provide an important perspective that can help us understand how to continue to involve and evolve and improve so we aren't stuck in the colonialist or paternalistic past that that unfortunately plagues much of the work that's been done historically and i think ultimately we still need to support the justification and return on investment for these trips I'll stick to my statement from my conclusions in that original uh, systematic review that I said back in 2014, and that's we'll always need comprehensive data collection and outcome assessment to justify, quantify, and verify the impact of MSTs or medical service trips. And I think it's not just to say that we need to do this work, which we do. I think we have to be able to say that what we're doing is making an impact and a positive one at that. Yeah, definitely. Those are important points and considerations for 
um, anybody who is wanting to do research or going on to these um, service trips. Could you both speak on what type of research um, that you have engaged with Partners Abroad and also specifically the ethical considerations that need to be addressed um, prior to starting any research? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'd like to bounce off of something that uh, Dr. Sykes just mentioned, and that was uh, service trips as a, as a terminology. Um, and I battle with this too, I, um, to find the right word to describe a high resource country individual or team or organization or non-government organization or government organization who's contributing to improvement with all the right intentions um, in a low resource area in global healthcare delivery. What do we call that? Right? It used to be medical missions and that had a connotation of a mission or evangelical or other aspect. We talked about uh, brigades. It's a term used in sub-Saharan Africa for a a team coming in. Um, Camp is a term used for hernia camps and things in in Zimbabwe. Um, Short-term medical team is a nice one or a vertical delivery team. But what it comes down to is we usually have the word trip in it being defined by us uprooting ourselves from one place, traveling, you know, and then placing ourselves into an environment on a trip that then we get up and leave. And um, I think that's an important thing for us to think about is uh, shifting. um, And this is going to go into my research answer uh, as I pontificate wildly here, but um, we take this, this, really passionate and altruistic idea of global surgical teams and individual efforts. And um, we have to be extremely careful to analyze our motivations, our outcomes that we're measuring, and the impact that we have both advertent and inadvertent on the um, host country, the host surgeons, the host hospitals. It's really interesting, the observer effect of what happens when we're present and when we're not present, if we're going on a quote trip. So that's something that's really important to me now that I had no idea about 18 years ago. And so for that reason, my research efforts, I wouldn't do them exactly the same as I did then. And when we do get to Dr. Sykes, I'd like to hear his take on that. But what I was just going to say about research, initially I collected data Uh, wherever I was uh, with surgical logbooks, with input forms, and uh, trying to help understand what patients were presenting. And then with identified local surgeons that were also interested and excited to contribute to research. And by doing that, then identified the dean of the medical school and made it so that the ethical review process through their IRBs was able to be not only streamlined, but made extremely appropriate. And so I think that was the key. The hardest thing to do was to create relationships and to create trust so that then when the research uh, process of collecting data, we collected 10 years of cleft patient data, created a huge database. And then I worked with GIS software to help to uh, locate and position 
uh, across the 12 million people of Zimbabwe, the position of where these kids and families were coming in from to better understand the travel that it took, the obstacles and the barriers that it took for them to get to the centralized hospitals for them to get care. Um, so honestly, work of a lifetime, the most fun I've ever had because I learned so much and I did so many things that was um, needed help to figure out how to do each step of that. Uh, currently, it's 100% all driven through local surgeons with me as a support structure. And um, that's not great for my residents and fellows who are also trying to accomplish this, but I think it's the way of the future for us to uh, act as instructors and counselors and um, supporters and sponsors um, for a new terminology to help facilitate understanding the environment that the surgical barriers and the surgical deficiencies which limit the care of, of kids. So I'm pretty excited about the options for surgical research in low resource settings with this new mindset that we're supporters. As we shift to Dr. Sykes's uh, comments, I wondered if he might, um, I'm taking the role of asking a question, but what do you think about the right terminology for global surgery teams and trips and such? What do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's a great question and an important question. <laughs> One of the other things I almost jokingly uh, initially put in that manuscript for the American Journal of Public Health I was talking about earlier was the number of terms that are referenced in the literature. And it was over 40 different terms for the same type of thing, um, the same type of effort. And I think it's the terminology is tough. I mean, I don't like the connotations of anything that has kind of a military sort of feel to it or anything that has an evangelical sort of feel to it or um, or those types of efforts that, that really make it sound very paternalistic and, and make it seem like an extension of colonialism. And... And I think we have to be careful about that. I, I've landed most commonly on medical service trips, um, but I also like the term um, global health engagement. I think that works uh, generally. And I think there's there's a group of people that use STEG, you know, this sort of short-term what is it? Short-term experiences in global health. Um, but that also often has a very educational tone to it. Um, and most often that educational tone is not for people in the communities where the care is being provided, but education for those who are going on the trip, as you said. So I think it's an important, an important question about what term we use and and even how we refer to someone who receives one of these teams, are they a recipient? Are they a host? Are they a partner? Are they something else? Um, I think that terminology is super important for establishing relationships that are mutually beneficial, that uh, contain that sort of embodiment of shared effort. And I think I think we have to be sensitive to those terms. I don't, I think med short-term medical mission is probably the most common term, certainly in the literature. 
but it's also, as I said, kind of has this mission component mm -hmm. to it that that could be interpreted as a military event or or something else. And I think that's tough to to know how to word that without getting a connotation that's unpleasant. I guess to to move back to the conversation about research a little bit and some of this some of this conversation about terminology has been informed by my experiences interviewing patients, interviewing uh, family members of patients and so forth. And I think generally the the tone from their perspective is oft, often just one of, of gratitude uh, and they're less concerned about what we're calling this thing and more concerned about whether or not we're able to help them. <laughs> but those of us that participate in these trips are, are certainly concerned about how we do it because of, because I do think it, it brings to mind a particular motivation when you call something a particular when you put a, a particular term on top of this effort then it does it does form and shape how you perceive that particular activity and what your role is in that activity is it about you coming in to provide some sort of saving service or is it about you coming to bring resources but also to bring effort to support local efforts to, to meet the needs of their own community. And I think that that's a little bit more of what the partnership looks like. And so maybe we should go with something like short-term medical partnerships or something along those lines. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but, but when we do research that includes the perspective of our partners in these communities, then we should be asking them, how they feel about terminology. Does terminology matter at all? Does it connotate some sort of power imbalance or does it not? And honestly, power is a big part of this conversation. We talk about that as we review the outcomes of our patients, um, especially for those things that are more subjective, that are, are maybe coming from a patient-reported outcome. We have to be sensitive to the fact that that the power imbalance may cause people to report outcomes in a particular way under the understanding that this is the desired outcome and they understand that a negative outcome could jeopardize a future trip. And, and I think we have to be sensitive to that whenever we're asking patients to report any complaints or whatever it may be. And how do we create an environment that's safe for them to challenge an ideal outcome in our mind? But we've done some work. Um, unfortunately, we haven't published nearly what we should, and that's that's on me. But we've done some work around understanding how people travel, what people expect, what happens when a patient um, is brought to one of these events, but then ultimately receives the bad news that that their particular surgical intervention is not going to happen either because their disease has progressed to a point that's beyond the comfort level of the surgeon or because we didn't bring the right equipment or we didn't bring the right person to do a particular procedure and i think that's a tough that's a tough situation that we don't often talk about uh, but it is it is maybe you could call it collateral damage of some of these trips and I think we have to be sensitive to that. And we've done some of that work um, back years ago. We probably need to repeat it at this point because it's just been so long. Um, but those are 
are some of the small efforts we've made to understand what patients are experiencing and why they seek care in that environment versus going to a national hospital or something along those lines. And we did that work in Guatemala. We've been working locally with a group of community health workers that are supervised by some former Peace Corps volunteers in Dominican Republic. And that effort has really been working toward a door-to-door health monitoring of patients that are diagnosed with hypertension or diabetes by a medical service team. So the team comes down, diagnoses a particular person with a particular condition, um, usually wants to follow them for some period of time before determining you know, the permanence of this particular diagnosis, especially with something like hypertension, where you may have a, an errant reading here or there, and we want to make sure that that's consistent before any kind of intervention is, is offered. And so we've been working toward tracking these individuals over time. And this too is geolocated, so we know where people live and we're able to send the community health worker right to their door to go and, and follow up with them on a monthly basis and, and take those measurements to see how they change over time. We haven't published that data yet, but we did present it at a virtual global health innovations conference that was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And, um, and we need to do some more work, but we haven't been able to kind of get back together around some of the effort and figure out how best to move it forward. I think when we talk about research, obviously we talk about ethics and we talk about what that looks like. And Dr. Tolson mentioned a, a bit about that and about IRBs and how you organize around a local IRB and how you allow for facilitation of IRB oversight from your own IRB if you're coming from an institution that has an IRB. And that's an interesting dynamic, to be honest. I think it's crucial that we work to develop these projects that meet the needs of the communities that we're working with. But sometimes sometimes we have to empower them to, to give us that information. And that's, that's a challenge of the relationships. And we have to put resources then behind that effort to support the idea and then ultimately execute the plan. And those standards associated with IRBs or associated with any sort of ethical oversight can vary from country to country. And and oftentimes you have to have somebody who speaks the language uh, to be able to help you navigate those websites because, you know, appropriately they're not in English. And so understanding how we, how we take a look at what IRB requirements exist in certain places is important and we should consider that. But oftentimes it's just a matter of listening to local experts who can help you navigate those requirements. And sometimes you, it may just require that you have a letter of support from the partner institution or the hospital where you're working. Other times it may involve a full committee review that, that requires you to participate in an IRB meeting uh, virtually. Uh, and that sometimes is necessary. It just depends on the country, but it's, but it's important to be certain that whatever work you're doing does have that appropriate ethical oversight. And we can't just assume that a low resource setting doesn't care about these types of things. That's a completely wrong, completely antiquated perspective at this point. Kevin, do you mind commenting on, it's not the word motivation, that's not accurate, but there's there's many um, different 
aspects of a life of a surgeon in some areas in uh, sub-Saharan Africa because it's a very diverse place. There's very wealthy hospitals with extremely gifted surgeons that have run a, a practice that looks much like ours. And then there's, just like in the U.S., there's rural hospitals that have less supplies, less, you know, what is the four S's like the you need space and stuff, you need staff, and you need a signal to get the communication out and to make this function. And I wondered what you have seen be effective as motivation in research in trying to have a your local partner help apply for IRB, for collecting data, for engaging with statisticians, biostatisticians, epidemiologists. That takes a little effort. And unless there's a a desire by the local surgeons to maybe advance their education at a postgraduate training level or contribute in a different fellowship tract or a different education level, it's hard to motivate. It's not too much different than interns, residents, or fellows. There's always a lot of motivation in our residents, fellows, uh, as they try to seek their next training. Uh, But when they're matched and ready to graduate, you can't get them to open the project to get it. <laughs> so what have you seen effective in, in some of this great work you're talking about in Guatemala and, and elsewhere? What is a way to make sure that the people stay engaged with you? I think one of the things that we have done is to feedback information from the work that we do. I think providing that level of review you know, of the data or whatever it may be that comes from the research project, giving them back some sort of report. And this has been true locally in the midst of COVID here in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, Just the community saying enough about you guys getting your benefits from a research standpoint, like what's in this for us? You have to give us something back. And you know, it's been the voices of a few very empowered and passionate people that have given me that perspective. And I think it's, it's critical. I think as a person who's worked in a lot of different settings, I I think we have to find, find out what's in it for them. And we have to say, hey, what if we could provide you with a platform for you to do this on your own? If we could just use this as a practice session for establishing a platform that would work for you and your community, then then that can be helpful to them because you know these surgeons in these communities and I've I did some remote teaching for some residents in um, with Dr. Wiederman actually in Ethiopia and and the purpose of that was not to say hey research is this grand thing that you can't do, we're going to have to help you do it. It's not that at all. It was to say, like, we know you have questions about how your patients are doing in particular settings, and, and we'd like to help you answer some of those questions. So can we help you build some templates for research that you can use under whatever question or whatever style you want and and ultimately allow them to ask questions that are important to them? That, that for me, has been the most critical component is getting out of my way, you know, in this conversation and saying, I don't, I don't want to drive this research project. I could ask a research question here, but I'm not going to, I want you to ask the research question. And and I want to, I want to get out of my own way in the midst of this so that I'm not some sort of hindrance for the team 
in in finding and identifying appropriate research questions for this community because so often you know and i'm sure you've seen this as well so often we come in and we've got this grand idea about what's important to this particular community and what's important about this particular surgery and we just miss completely there's an interesting paper i read a long time ago that talked about parents who were asking questions about cleft lip and palate repair and they did a qualitative review after the fact with the they did interviews with these with these parents and the the question for them after the fact was how do you feel about the outcome now that your child has had this repair and many of them were under the impression that that their child's voice would improve when only the lip had been repaired and obviously you know better than i that that's not going to impact their hyponasality or anything like that so they they reviewed this whole group of people and most of them were just appalled by the outcomes because the the right question wasn't asked aesthetically the outcomes were good but that wasn't what was most important to them it's it's it reminds me of um i think what you said about getting out of the way that's it's really a theme of that i've taken up i did not come from there as i started because i started on short-term medical teams going into small villages in Ecuador with 26 um, American, Canadian, and Latin American practitioners of one kind or another, setting up hospital sites and then doing, you know, 112 cleft lip and palate procedures in a week, two weeks at this, you know, breakneck pace and trying to measure our success by what the typical standard was, which was number of cases. And you know, after about fifteen of these, as I started lead started to lead teams, I started to say, "Boy, we got to do better than just counting the number of patients that go to sleep and wake up." And it makes me think when you brought up that point about backwards planning curriculum. Uh, this is a little bit of a stretch, but like as we write curriculum for teaching in uh, low resource settings, we we do this backward planning process based on the patient problem, and so we sit down and do, you know, a Delphi type model or a modified Delphi um, technique with the local uh, surgeons, nurses, you know. Uh, contributors and find out what patient problems are the things that they see are the most untouched, the most unmet. And then that patient problem is divided up to best understand what the worst case scenario is if that problem is not addressed. So like if it's a broken jaw, most kids will heal, but they'll end up with a an occlusion, a teeth that don't fit right. And of course they might not get orthodontics, you know, to make their teeth look good, but they're going to survive. It's not going to be a long-term disability issue. That uh, is true in kids, but in an an elderly man with some immunosuppression, that mandible fracture could result in a neck abscess and airway collapse, and then a patient who doesn't make it. So figuring out through backwards planning, how to set up your uh, your initiatives and your research projects is kind of, uh, I think it's kind of cool to do it through sitting down and having conversations. And that's lots of times not done in an official way, sitting around a boardroom table with a 
pot of tea in front of you that you never touch and an official name placard sitting in front of you. It's usually done after a lot of work on a napkin sitting on a couch where you're exhausted and talking about your day. And that's when these ideas pop up. And I just encourage, you know, as you're thinking about, you know, people like Joshua, I heard you mention uh, Joshua's name. I know he spent at least a year in Ethiopia uh, on the ground, uh, contributing in uh, direct. It's almost like a Peace Corps volunteer. I, when someone brought that up earlier, it made me think of the people that impressed me the most around the world that I've worked with are the people that either were former Peace Care volunteers or actively in it. When in Ecuador, those were the people that helped us the most. And what they contributed was cultural knowledge, interpretation or translation of language, and a connection to the families and the local culture that allowed for communication so that we could minimize what Kevin just brought up. And that's miscommunication of what the outcome of the surgery or the intervention would be. And you and I um, uh, know that even, I mean, even this morning I, I did a, a surgery that um, as I was interviewing in the preoperative area, we were talking about options and it was very clear that my one hour consult uh, two weeks before wasn't effective at delivering exactly what the choices were and what the outcomes could be. And that's an hour in my own language, in my own clinic Imagine what it can be like if it's using a translator in a site and there's a very strange foreign doctor sitting there trying to communicate. So we went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but I think this is the stuff that matters the most because trying to figure out how to contribute, because we all have big hearts, we all care and love, and this is the thing that makes us, it drives us, it makes us wake up in the morning and know we're doing the right thing. My speech even gets pressured when I talk about it because I, I love it so much. But figuring out how we can do it better has a lot to do with slowing down and trying to pay attention to the unintended consequences of our good intentions. Absolutely. No, I think you've, you've mentioned, you know, outcomes over output is kind of how I have referred to it. That sort of historical perspective that the best thing we can do here is count the number of things that we do it's just not good enough anymore. And the, and the good intentions are 100% there. Um, there's constantly this drive toward understanding what's the most appropriate thing to do in this particular spot, in this particular setting. And I think that's super important. And you, and you mentioned these cultural brokers, as we sometimes refer to them, but they, they can really help you yeah. in a way that that is only possible if you spend a great deal of time in a single setting. And, and I love those conversations that are after a busy day over dinner or, or sometimes it is around tea, but it's not a formal meeting setting. It's, it's just tea. And I, I think that's a great time to, to discuss what's important to people and, and how do we work together to meet those objectives. Thanks for joining us for this discussion with Dr. Tollefson and Dr. Sykes on research and terminology within global surgery. Join us for part two on the next episode. Mm -hmm.